It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a sumptuous selection of this week's coverage from across all our content. I'm not Anne McElvoy. I'm Kenneth Kukier, another senior editor of the paper. And on this week's menu, Uber hits some potholes in Africa. Mobsters take on Quebec's maple monopoly, and a Victorian naturalist who was both intellectually and quite literally omnivorous. But first, the Trump era was our cover line this week. Defying the odds, Donald J. Trump became the next president of the United States of America. His victory overturns classic certainties about America and its role in the world, we argued. It is the end of one epoch and the start of another. The fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9th, 1989, was when history was said to have ended. The fight between communism and capitalism was over after a titanic ideological struggle encompassing the decades after the Second World War, open markets and Western liberal democracy reigned supreme. Almost 30 years later, we were all proved wrong. In the early morning of November 9th, 2016, when Donald Trump crossed the threshold of 270 electoral college votes to become America's president-elect, that illusion was shattered. History is back with a vengeance. The reality TV star and property developer will soon be in the White House, and the implications of the vote are severe. The fact of Mr. Trump's victory and the way it came about are hammer blows both to the norms that underpin politics in the United States and also to America's role as the world's preeminent power. The reverberations of this monumental change have been felt across the world. The sense that old certainties are crumbling has rocked America's allies. The fear that globalization has fallen flat has whipsawed markets. Mr. Trump rode in on a wave of anger and suspicion, we argued. Feeling themselves victims of an unfair economic system, ordinary Americans blamed the elites in Washington for being too spineless and too stupid to stand up to foreigners and big business. Or worse, they believe that the elites themselves are part of the conspiracy. But we expressed our hope that this election will prove cathartic. Perhaps in office, Mr. Trump will be pragmatic and magnanimous, as he was in his acceptance speech. Perhaps he will be King Donald, a figurehead and tweeter-in-chief who presides over an executive vice president and a cabinet of competent, reasonable people. That at least is the hope. If you're struggling to make sense of what's going on in the United States, pick up a copy of this week's issue to read all of our analyses. We have more than 15 pages of it. Many were in denial about the result of the election. But there was a notable exception, Vladimir Putin. Russia's president welcomed Mr. Trump's victory. But as an article explained in our Europe section, strangely, so did some of his opponents. Russian lawmakers burst into applause when news of Donald Trump's victory reached Moscow. The White House will be home to a candidate whose chumminess with Russia provoked one former CIA director to call him an unwitting agent of Vladimir Putin. The applause faded at Russia's borders, however. Russia's neighbours are fretting about the withdrawal of Western backing to deter Russian aggression. Mr Putin is hoping for a deal with Mr Trump, 
similar to the 1945 Yalta Agreement, to carve out a Russian sphere of influence. But a Trump presidency may in fact augur badly for Mr. Putin's hold on power. Mr. Trump's victory, part of a global populist backlash against the political status quo, is an ominous sign for Mr. Putin and his wealthy cronies, who have held power for more than 16 years. If Russians grow angry at their corrupt elite, there is only one target for their anger. Perhaps this is why some of his opponents were popping champagne too, we explained. One is Mikhail Saakashvili, a former president of Georgia, who fought a short war with Russia in 2008. He thinks Mr Trump's predecessors failed to stand up to Mr Putin and were repeatedly outmaneuvered. He also believes America's policy of encouraging Ukraine to reintegrate its separatist eastern provinces is ruinous. The less America interferes in Ukraine at this point, the better, he says. With some people glad that America might mind its own business then, heading now to our America section, we reported on a case of meddling which seems to have gone awry. A heist in Canada aimed to take on Quebec's maple syrup monopoly. But some of the alleged sticky-fingered thieves ended up caught and are in the courtroom. The defendants are accused of stealing syrup worth 18.7 million Canadian dollars. That's 14 million American dollars from the province's Strategic Reserve, a caper that involved the use of throwaway burner phones and shoeboxes stuffed with cash. Sweet. The flavorful trial has had Quebecers hooked. Richard Vallière, one of the four defendants on trial in Trois-Rivières, admits that he acted as a barrel roller, someone who helps producers find customers who are willing to pay more than the only legal buyer in the province, the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers. But in 2011, he was approached to carry out a far riskier crime. Stealing from the Federation itself. Prosecutors say a lorry driver transported blue barrels full of syrup from the Federation warehouse in St. Louis de Blanford to Mr. Valliere, who drained them and refilled them with water to be returned to storage. Having drained the barrels, his coffers were filled. The thefts during 2011 and 2012 brought Mr. Valliere a profit of close to one million Canadian dollars. He claims that he acted under duress. Or he was just a sap. You can read more about the trial in this week's issue, so head to our website at economist.com. Uber has found itself in a rather sticky situation as well, but over in Africa, as an article in our business section explained, we took a look at the potholes facing the ride-sharing company. Of the 529 cities in which Uber connects riders with drivers, just 14 are on the continent. Yet Africa is fertile ground for a firm offering cheap and safe transport. Most passengers have to spring for overpriced cabs or catch a white-knuckled ride on the back of a motorcycle taxi. In the cities where it has launched, it appears to be growing quickly. In many places, rides cost less than a quarter of the fare charged by taxis. And it is adapting to local markets too. But while many countries have attempted to block Uber through legal means, taxi drivers in some African cities are taking the matter into their own hands. At the airport and main railway stations in Johannesburg, cabbies crowd around commuters, looking intently at their smartphones before trying to manhandle those who seem to be getting into Uber cars. Shots have been fired in some of these clashes. So Uber has been turning to its tried and tested method of winning over taxi drivers. Mainly by signing them up. 
If you can't beat them, join them. Our science and technology podcast, Babbage, turned its inquisitive eye to artificial intelligence this week with a look at how it is being used to fight online fraud. Martin Sweeney, the co-founder of the company Ravelin, explains where AI comes into its own compared with human counterparts. Actually, if you just look at a transaction in isolation, it's quite hard to make an educated decision. Really what you're seeing at the transaction level is, here's a payment instrument, a card, please go and bill it for $30, right? That's actually quite hard to give a yes-no decision on. So what we do, and others in the industry do, is to take a wider view. We say, what happened before that transaction went through? Who is it that's making that transaction? What is the order for? Where is it coming from? And by stringing together all those different pieces of information, you operate in a much richer data environment. And that's where you really need the artificial intelligence side of things to crunch through much larger swathes of data and to spot the ever-changing faces and patterns within that. Artificial intelligence likes to devour data. But our final nibble in this week's tasting menu turns to a human with an undeniably voracious appetite. The subject of a work in our books and arts section was a Victorian naturalist and an omnivore, both intellectually and quite literally. Frank Buckland was a 19th century scientist, surgeon and culinary buccaneer who, as the title of this biography declares, ate the zoo. That is perhaps an understatement of his achievements. Buckland ate much that no self-respecting zoo would consider for its cages. Earwigs, horribly bitter, being a particular low point. The aim of his endeavour was not gastronomic, but scientific. As a biologist and an optimist, Buckland wanted to find a new source of protein to help the world avoid the Malthusian doom that had been predicted a generation before. He had high hopes for horse meat. Something that British supermarkets certainly know a lot about. But found quality control a problem. As they did. One thing is for sure, he was dedicated to the cause. Roast giraffe apparently tastes a little like veal. A hedgehog, meanwhile, is good and tender. The exhumed panther, however, comes with a weaker recommendation. One such beast, having died in a London zoo, been buried for a couple of days, then dug up, was pronounced not very good. Now that's what I call a real tasting menu. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and this was ours. Don't forget to give us feedback by emailing us at radio at tweeting us, or writing to us on Facebook. In London, this is The Economist.